Good morning, people of the internet. You're listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the movie Gross Point Blank, one minute at a time. I'm Dev. And I'm Hugh. And on today's show, we're going to be looking at Minute 11, which will allow Dev to speak once again about the improbability of the office that the Cusacks are working in. This office does not stop fascinating me. But... uh, (laughs) Joining us for the whole of this week, uh, we are lucky enough to have David Forsyth of uh, many podcasts, including the uh, recently uh, wrapped up Edge of Tomorrow podcast and a uh, brand new podcast, hopefully coming soon, that uh, David might tell us about a little later on. Yeah, we'll, Welcome, maybe, David. we'll maybe schedule that new one for 2024, <laughs> maybe 25. We'll see. But yeah. <laughs> Slow going around here. I mean, we don't even know when this one's going to be starting to, <laughs> to drop yet because we're still trying to figure things out. Right. We're just so capturing, capturing audio at this point. Hopefully just, January. <laughs> I'll just throw a number out and then people can decipher it in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. So uh, what can I just ask briefly, David, because um, when Dev proposed this podcast to me, I was not familiar with the movie by minutes uh. formula. Um, are you obviously you've you've been part of it? You're aware of it. Do you have any idea how it started? Sure. Yeah. the The first one to kind of run with this format of the you know a week of minutes that kind of drops on Monday through Friday thing was was Star Wars Minute. Those guys are sort of the progenitors of of the the format. There was another one before that called Oh gosh, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was about the um, the Farley Brothers movie where they're was Amish bowling. I can't remember the name of that. Oh, movie. Uh, Kingpin. Kingpin. Yeah. So I think it was called Gutterballs. Now that I think about it, what's oh, the name nice. of it? Good they time. did a similar sort of format where they were covering it minute by minute, but it didn't do the daily sort of drop kind mm-hmm. of thing, which is sort of the whole. We don't we don't stick to it real tightly <laughs> um, in the community. There's a lot of people who do like a five minute uh, episode or do like you know. Two, two minutes a week kind of thing that's that's kind of what we did was a was a uh two minutes a week and and uh you know took us forever to release a 120 minute movie but whatever mm. um so yeah it was uh but yeah that, that's sort of the, the basics of it oh, cool um that's when i when i first heard about the format the, that was the first one i heard of was star wars minute and i was like wait what people are doing what now yeah, um yeah, and i looked at it and it, was, and it was real and it wasn't the first one i listened to though i after i saw that there was a star wars minute uh, I saw that there was a whole list of them and someone was doing alien minute. And I was like, Whoa, oh. I, I need to listen to that one. And they were, they're real good. Cause the guys who did that almost treated it like a film school right. uh, class about alien, which was great. They, they really broke it down shot by shot and, and kind of talked about some of the composition of the story, composition of the shots and, and the, the lighting and all that stuff and, and a lot of the tech effects and, and it, it was that was a really good one that one was one that really drew me in uh, so yeah. i do love the variety of approaches that this format yeah. allows for um mm-hmm. you know pete and alex who did uh, star wars minute i think they kind of went more down the comedic angle and there are for a few sure. other podcasts that have pushed even further in that direction mm. um the but at the same time, you can go super technical. You can go back into the uh, kind of the actual cinematography, the the direction. Um, yeah. I feel like, especially with both Star Wars Minute and the Indiana Jones Minute podcast, there's a lot of talk about Foley artists, which I've mentioned before. <laughs> uh, 
because obviously it's Ben Burt. So how can you not speak about yeah. about that? So the when we were prepping for Edge of Tomorrow Minute, one of the ones that we obviously took a lot of inspiration from was Groundhog Day Minute um, or Groundhog Minute. I forget exactly what they titled it, but the the movies by Minute Project about the movie Groundhog Day. Let's let's just say that. And um, it's they started out pretty typical. Uh, but then in the middle, they shifted and got very philosophical about <laughs> like the concepts of, you know, what does this time looping thing mean and to get out of it by being a good person? What does that mean? And and so, I mean, they kind of got deep on it. I was like, wow, that's uh, it's sort of um, and, and, you know, those guys are just kind of two goofballs, but they finally did really kind of dive in and, and found their, their voice with that that philosophy. Sorry, guys, I didn't mean to call you goofballs, but you know what I mean? They, <laughs> they, would, they would probably agree with it. But, you hey, know they, I mean. they probably just started watching The Good Place, you know? That's right. That's probably true. <laughs> All right. So uh, this minute then, minute 11. Dev, your favorite movie in the world. Tell us about this minute. <laughs> yeah, so in this minute, we start with... Um, John Cusack, Martin Blank, uh, fiddling with the lamp on top of a filing cabinet in his office by his desk, um, kind of harking back to that conversation we had last episode about uh, how he feels uncomfortable in an office environment. Uh, and we see John Cusack and Martin Blank interacting face-to-face for the first time as she passes on the feedback from the last client and how they are not happy with his performance in the job ending Mm -hmm. the minute with um i got a black cat friday the 13th kind of feeling about this Mm -hmm. this is a great line yeah absolutely terrific line another sort of crisp piece of writing we we you know it's 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 so well written this film just so well written And, and again you know it's very interesting that armitage allowed yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, we, we were saying a few episodes ago how he he's he's spoken on in interviews to various bloggers about the idea that he would shoot a script as written, then he would shoot an understated take, mm. then he would say "go wild," and you know it, they pieced the film together from these. And I really one day, maybe one day, though, we'll get a commentary and we can find out which takes are which. Yeah, you know? I'd, I'd love to get. Riffing. I'd love to get the DVD where it just uh, like each scene is labeled like. You know, as written, understated, over or uh, overblown. That would be incredible. But, yeah, that'd I be mean, cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much of the footage remains, but yeah, he, that's yeah, what he said. He, yeah. he said apparently he he struggled to, to to cut it down to the runtime it is. He wanted to keep mm-hmm. it at a hundred minutes and it's at a hundred nine. Um, so again, that's another interesting thing is is the amount of work that went into editing it. Um, but yes, he'd never I, he'd never done anything that we would consider comedy before this right i mean uh, not really i mean miami uh, miami blues had a, a hint yeah. of comedy well he has comic moments but it is True. very much hard-boiled pulp, fi- yeah. pulp fiction yeah. and then his his earlier stuff was much more um i mean vigilante forces typical you know end of 70s action stuff um it was all a bit more kind of down-to-earth gritty stuff and i think right. but i think he has one foot in each territory i think that's the thing that makes him interesting is he understands how to he, you know, he understands how to deliver the crisp action thriller and therefore the room for the comedy sort of, you know, he knows how to allow it to happen and not force it. And I think that's quite interesting as a director because Miami Blues, no one expected it to be as funny as it was, you know, mm. you know, the whole business with, um, oh man, the scene in the Miami airport with the, with the, um, oh crap, it was called the um, Harry Krishna is just, you know, <laughs> it's me- one of the great sort of memorable scenes from that. And it's like, 
that I feel like I feel like it, that adaptation is almost not quite a dry run for this, but it, it does feel like Armitage has, you know, found a, a certain groove that works for both him and the audience. If that makes yeah. sense, yeah, um, yeah. And the sense I've gotten from reading some of his writing is that he felt like he'd got it really well nailed down in Miami Blues except mm. for the ending. And I, I'm not mm. going to go into what that is, but mm-hmm. um, I think that's where he felt like he'd kind of let the audience down a little bit was that mm. ending was unsatisfying to many viewers. Mm-hmm. And I think part of this movie is him bringing up the comedy a little bit and and changing that ending so that the outcome is a little bit different, so that it gels a little better. Yeah. And I, and I think the Cusacks are also at the heart of it as well. I mean, you know, yeah. this really feels like uh, the definitive Joan Cusack moment, but also mm. the definitive John Cusack film. I mean, I know most people would, would say high fidelity, but this is the first time he's a producer. This is the first time. Yeah, it's the second time I think he's writing with these friends of his. But do you know what I mean? It's, it's still early days for him as the person in charge of the creativity. Yeah. Um, and And so- I think this scene in particular, and it's a shame that we've kind of, ended up splitting it right right in the middle of the, <laughs> the, the dialogue but Can't this scene in particular i i feel like it it's probably something that could only be sold by two people who knew each other as well as these two know each other the, yeah. the back and forth i mean i think this is probably one of the sections i haven't checked the script that we have but i think this is one of those sections where they probably went off script a little bit mm-hmm. um and I think you can feel that they just have that natural relationship, the chemistry, to really sell this scene. Yeah, absolutely. And they're both absolutely. really doing their characters' storytelling justice in this too. They're not just being brother and sister interacting. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, clearly the rapport is there between them, but I think the they they do a lot of storytelling with their actions here. You know, the when Joan waits outside of the office to be called in and is sort of meek but you know that she's not that meek person we've seen that side of her already we know that what is about to unfold was at least in part orchestrated by her right i mean like she's got a motive that she's advancing but she's playing the subordinate secretary role in some sense to you know the role within the role you know her her character isn't that meek person but she's doing it to advance what she needs to do here so yes and and we we've talked about how she's a much more assertive character when they are apart you know um one of the things we mentioned in previous episodes is the fact that she's the one who actually has the office he's sat at the receptionist desk which (laughs) makes sense because he's probably never in the office really very often um she's the one that has the computer she's the one that runs the show but she knows who she's dealing with. And so whenever she's face to face with him, there's a lot more of that timer- uh, timidity and, and hesitation, mm. I feel. Well, I mean, you know, it's that thing of knowing that the person who can do, who can commit to violence yeah. <laughs> yeah. quite easily is now in the same building in the same room as you. <laughs> well, we see that, uh, you know, there's a point where she, when she mentions that he can go to his reunion again, like he's, she's already been told not to bring it up and she brings it up again. He has sort of a violent, just a flash, right? Like he stands up and kind of pushes things around on the desk and she flinches a little, like you can see her eyes get big, but she doesn't, she doesn't rear back. I mean, but she's, I think part of the working for a contract killer of a violent person is, 
is yeah part of part of what is uh part of that meekness but also you know she just knows his personality right she knows how to to push his buttons a little bit and and being her loud assertive self isn't going to to get done what she needs to get done mm. it's also interesting that this is a few years well this is several years after we have, we've had a couple of some interesting uh takes on on the secretary in American film and TV. I mean, I'm thinking back to Twin Peaks season one, you know, where you've got both uh, an, an, an unseen secretary, but you know who she is and there's a sense of her personality through the kind of messages he's recording for her. And you also have uh, the actual, the secretary in the uh, sheriff's station as well, Lucy, yeah. you know, and, you, and who was a very interesting character. And, and, and again, a very kind of different take on that sort of character. Um, and the, and so it feel I, for me there's a kind of a an interesting it's not a particularly big trend but it just feels like there's a sort of uh, a sense of that role um, maybe returning in some ways to some of the more kind of glorious moments in the forties I don't know um, but there's kind of a, a distinction of, of make, recognizing that these are these women actually hold a degree of power in a way mm. that people. You know, a lot of film and TV did not always offer them that. You know, it's, it, used to, it could be quite a thankless role, um, and, and 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 instead, Joan just makes this something interesting and different, and, and beyond just what's on the page. It's it's as you say, there's a, the physical nature of how she performs as well in this scene is just so interesting. Yeah, um, and it's I think very, that's yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was going to say it's a very nine to five ish kind yeah. of play of that where they hold the power. They know they hold the power. The boss knows they couldn't get by without them, but they keep the dynamic boss employee. Like they, 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 mm. they run this, this uh, kind of masquerade of, of that, that dynamic, even though mm. they know that all the business happens mm. in that subordinate person, you know, I'm doing air quotes for the people who can't see um, yeah. doing in that subordinates <laughs> role. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, I, I, so I was just actually pulling up the script and having a look at this, this scene in the script and much of it plays out the same, but I think a lot of the really bright moments of this script, um, are actually impromptu. They're not, they're not written down in, in this version of the script, at least. Um, although I will say the broken mirror, black cat Friday the 13th kind of feeling is, is in the script. Oh, um, but also the Greenpeace boat bit, which yeah. we actually see several minutes ago, was originally meant to be in this scene as an alternate to the Detroit game. Ah, okay. So they moved that to the car. So presumably they thought it was funnier then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Interesting. I was telling someone about that joke yesterday, just just in passing. It's just one of those things that. If you're old enough to have seen this film in the cinema, <laughs> as my friends yesterday were, you know, we were kind of just, I was, we were talking about something political and, 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 and so, uh, uh, and, and various, uh, sort of conspiracies that have come, have proven to be real and as opposed to ones that aren't. And yeah, it just popped up and it just made me think once again, what, how this film world builds in its own way. It, it grounds the fantasy, if you like, of, you know the the, the 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 not quite Melville-esque, you know, <laughs> romantic assassin thing, but it's almost that. Mm. You know, very stylish, uh, but it certainly grounds where he is, the world he's in, nicely. Yeah. So, 
What about, Dev, I want to I want to drag you back to the thing. I know we do this on a regular basis, but The Office, right? Do you really <laughs> think? Do you really? I, I, now, keep now because we since we go over these these minutes, I'm I'm sort of kind of halfway with in agreement with you, and then there's another aspect of it in which I kind of feel. May- <laughs> I don't know enough about Los Angeles' Los Angeles architecture historically to know, you know, to be able to because your your point is that these sorts of offices only exist in fiction. Yeah, and I'm not sure I really believe that. This is the same person. <laughs> this is the same person that swore black and blue that possums did not really exist. So <laughs> there is, you know, any any you're admitting that have, you're admitting that on this one, Mike. <laughs> I I well I grew up learning that marsupials lived in the antipodes right and that's where all marsupials were and then i find out about possums in america and i'm like well that clearly can't be true because <laughs> there aren't marsupials in america they all live in the antipodes and i may you? have now seen one and proven myself wrong but um, <laughs> until that point until that point um so yeah for me you know this is a style of office that is used in movies a lot mm-hmm. Um, it is very reminiscent of film noir. Uh, you see this a lot there. You also see maybe slightly different, but similar renditions of this kind of, um, semi open plan, lots of glass windows, lots of this kind of very red wood. I can't even think what it is. Oak, I guess, um, uh, furnishings and, you know, uh, um walls and doors made made the same way in uh police procedurals i think of due south when i think of this a little mm-hmm. bit yeah, um, yeah i think mike hammer and yeah, and yeah it's a very noir noir office feel to me yeah it is right and yeah. and yet i've never seen anything like this in real life you know you sometimes see this kind of architecture in psychiatrists offices as well hmm. uh, ah. especially in the 80s and 90s right i think Psychiatrists portrayed these days tend to have a more modernist aesthetic. They have a a more, you know, swanky mm. office space. But certainly for this time when maybe that was a less uh, lauded uh, mm. career option in in popular culture, if not in, in real life, mm. um, it feels, yeah, it just, it's something that I've not seen anything that even approximates it. And as you said, like in LA in particular, I feel like this is an odd uh, look. I could I could see it more in like the brick tenement buildings that you tend to get, or the brick office buildings mm, you tend to get mm. in Chicago, maybe in New York, mm. uh, in some of those older cities on the Midwest and mm. East Coast. Um, but it does seem incongruous to the kind of bright, sunny, palm treed LA that we're meant <laughs> yeah. to be in. Interesting. Do it you think that some... this is part of what ties it to kind of the neo-noir movement of the 90s? Because this is coming out, you know, at the ta- tail end of that. I think it definitely is, right? This is this is a edgy reimagining of film noir, right? It's mm. it's a character that is somewhat ambiguous in their morality and in, you know, they're not mm. a, a traditional hero. They're not the superhero character they are a much more grounded quasi real person. Mm. Um, they have, you know, their, uh, their loyal secretary. They, 
you know, go out, they go to save the dame in the end. It's it's mm. very much that kind of arc that you you're used to in film noir in, you know, the Maltese mm. Falcon or whatever. Um I do think it was an intentional choice from that perspective rather than really worrying about the realism of such an office space. And assuming these offices really do exist, I'm sure there is probably somewhere in LA that does have something like this or did at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely picturing this in a, like a larger multi-use office building, right? There are lots of, like there's probably an accountant down the hall and whatever, mm-hmm. and they pay month by month. It comes furnished Right, they mm-hmm. didn't. They didn't pick these dueling ship pictures in the background <laughs> out, right? And like, th- there's weird features to it too. Like the when he's sitting at his desk, there's a a power outlet at head height behind him. Like, yeah. that's sort of unusual, right? Like, I, that's not where we usually would find them. And and uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I think a a place that was chosen for an assassin's office because it's. They didn't ask any questions on the application, mm. right? They can pay month to month. They can get in and out quickly. Mm. It might be, you know, close to the freeway. It might be, you know, like mm. have other sort of geographic features. So to, to me, it um, it screams low key and temporary. Mm. Um, mm. In addition to a, the noir, noir Excuse me, let me try that again. In addition to the noiry bits yep. that you guys uh, talked about, I think it's got, um, I mean, the, the lighting coming through the the, the uh, blinds mm. is a total noir move, mm. right? I mean, that, yeah. that's mm. full on uh, just like the most stereotypical <laughs> yeah, private dick lighting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's also kind of a juxtaposition to something like office space, right? which mm-hmm. is all of the, you know, the plasterboard and the uh, acoustic tiles on the ceiling uh, with the, that drop ceiling that you get. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. this is like the antithesis cool. of this. This isn't Neo living in the Matrix. This isn't office space. This isn't the drudgery of a boring day job. This is, you know, entrepreneurial almost, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, True. Yeah. I must admit, it's funny you mentioned the, the the more typical office of 97, 98, and I'm just sort of imagining Martin Blank, you know, because I cannot see him, even temporarily for the sake of like, you know, two months rent or whatever, going into that kind of building or office. Do you know what I mean? That's the kind of world he just cannot stand. Yeah. It also brings up an, another interesting point, too, because y- you think a lot of these, you know, assassins for hire or whatever might have a like a a day job that disguises what they really are. But I mean, he doesn't have assassin on his, on his office door, but he clearly isn't living a, a lifestyle that is trying to disguise what he does. You know, he, he has a, a place, an office that he goes to. He has, I don't know. It, it's, it's not hidden, I guess is, is the, uh, the he doesn't have an alternate identity. Yes. Yeah. He just is him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Uh, for good those point. of you listening to Hughes Acoustic in the background, uh, Sorry, it yeah, is that... Diwali weekend, and yes. <laughs> so there are plenty of fireworks going off around the UK. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, it's not a lot I can do about that. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably get some of those here in New Jersey as well. It's uh, yes. cool. yeah, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, no, we we have a, a we're the one part of Buckinghamshire that has a fairly significant Asian population. Nice. Um, uh, it's, it's 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 a fairly uh, 
it's one of the more traditional British counties normally, but um, this town I live in is uh, has a, it's a university town, and there's a lot of uh, uh, immigrants who've set up various kinds of businesses and are now quite, you know, well established. So uh, yeah, I, I school, I'm, I'm a secondary school teacher by day, so I'm I'm usually teaching the boys in question. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, so no, uh, so my question for this is, who chose this office? Was this was this a? I'm going to delegate this to Marcella, and Marcella is going to just find me something that's going to work for for my needs, or is mm. this Martin Blank wanting to relive that film noir vibe of you know characters he idolized as a child, or that you know did he want to embody that as part of his you know um, citizen of what of you know population country country population one kind of thing that he is hmm. he is a man alone hmm. i mean they sort of lead you to believe that marcella is the the details person right like she mm-hmm. she handles all of the all of the logistics and everything so in that instance and the fact that she has set herself up in the office right in the in the private like the good part of of it uh, would lead me to believe it's it's her but but yeah i think there is something about the image that that martin sort of they give hints to in his personality too so i, I think it could certainly go either way either way but my 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 bet would be on marcella so and yeah, and maybe it's just a testament to how well marcella knows mm. martin that sure she was able to find something that would appeal to him right well, well uh, do you guys think it appeals to him there's something about the way he prowls around at the beginning and i can't work out if that is just him uh working out how he's going to deal with the upcoming confrontation because for a man who likes killing people he, well who's good at killing people he doesn't like confrontation a lot um, I, and i you know and how much of that is him going wait oh yeah i remember this place now why wait why doesn't this work now you know just he seems really uncomfortable in that space so i think for me it's one of those things where the idea of having this office was one thing and the reality of coming into this office is a different Mm. thing Mm. i i can imagine him as thinking you know the the hard-boiled detective freelance private detective Mm. uh the dick tracy that this is what he wanted his office to look like when he had to set up an office Hmm. but then the reality of coming in he's still very uncomfortable because this is not um where he wants to be this is not his idea of what he wants to be doing for a job he just didn't think through the the reality of coming into this building every day he just saw it as a an an iconic image for him okay I can buy that. Hmm. David, anything else on this minute? I think I think we're coming to the end of what we can say about <laughs> this minute without you know looping over into the next one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some of what I would want to throw out here probably does kind of bridge into the next one, but I, I think it's maybe a testament to the to the storytelling structure of this one that at minute eleven we have the main conflicts, if not the details and the characters laid out already, right? Like Mm -hmm. we know we we have a contract killer who's 
at odds with contract killing uh, association, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. that uh, is sort of hinted at um, that he's not so great at his job right now because he's having conflicts and that he's going to be attending his reunion and that's causing him, you know, mental anguish and questioning, you know, all that's laid out here by minute 11 already, right? The, the rest mm-hmm. of what we're going to get is, is adding interesting, more, more interesting characters, adding a couple of motivations here and there mm-hmm. um, and, and some details. So I, I think, uh, I think it's a very efficient story up to this point. Yeah. It's it, this whole film is very high tempo and, and yeah. unapologetic about it. It has Agreed. a lot. Yeah going on in almost every minute of the film there's yeah. you know a lot of dialogue it's quite rapid dialogue it's not expositionary and you know everything is is very well set out to keep that pace going and to keep the user engaged or yeah. the viewer engaged i should say i think the only other thing i had is that i i think this is probably the most um, I'm not sure how to phrase this. So the, the Cusacks have obviously been in movies together before, but I think this is the one where they are both fairly prominent within the film. Like this is the one where they're both most prominent throughout the entirety of the film together. I think, you know, like mm-hmm. they're, they're both in 16 candles. They're both in high fidelity. They're both in, uh, what was that? War Inc. The, the one that was sort of the mm-hmm. sequel ish to this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, th- this was the first one, I think, where they both sort of let themselves um, be fully in touch characters throughout the whole thing. And I, I think it's I think it's fun. So, yeah. 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 So, anyway. Cool. OK, right. then. So <clears throat> this was minute 11 of the Gross Point Blank. Minute, Movies by Minutes podcast, a.k.a. Debbie Radio, 79.5 FM, featuring your hosts, co-writers, co-producers, Dev Zoligar and Hugh David. Today's guest was David Forsyth. Uh, you can find him at... Where can we find you, David? Uh, edgeoftomorrowminute.com has that whole show. Um, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> okay. And um, you can find us at All Good Podcast Players, also on YouTube, Twitter, aka X, uh, whichever of those it currently is, the artist formerly known as, uh, as well as Spotify. And on all of those, we are at Debbie Radio or on our website, debbieradio.com. And for all of those, it is D E B I Radio. So that's mm-hmm. one B and an I, no E, no Y, no second B. <laughs> And if you want to talk with us, uh, there's a Facebook listener group as well, Debbie Radio 79.5 FM Fan Club. Sure was clear that all of this was new. Concentrating hard like a little girl, smoking for the first time. It wasn't a moment, it was a feeling.